0: Hi there, my name's Ollie Lloyd and welcome to the Food Talk Show. On the show today, we're joined by Rupert Pick, the co-founder of Hot Pickle. Now, Hot Pickle is not some TikTok gherkin startup. In fact, it's one of the leading experiential marketing agencies. Over the last 14 years, they've worked with leading food and drink brands like Magnum, Nutella, Ella's Kitchen, Campari, Guinness and Eat Natural and have offices in the UK and the US. Rupert worked in, at Unilever with me back in the day, and even at What If Innovation, which is now part of Accenture. He also worked at Raymond Blanc's Manoir de Cat Saison one summer, so he doesn't know a thing or two about cooking. Welcome, Rupert, and thanks for joining the Food Talk Show.
1: Absolute pleasure, Ollie, and, and, and thanks for in, inviting me. A real honour.
0: Well, listen, you know, you, you were a kind of, you know, one of those legendary marketers at Unilever um, and then bounced into um, doing that crazy innovation stuff with, uh, with many of us at uh, What If. What, what was the sort of the genesis of Hot Pickle? How did you get involved in this space and why?
1: Correctly, Ollie, I would love to say it's some, it was some sort of master plan, but it really was a sequence of opportunistic moves, really. And, 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 and perhaps at an extreme uh, out of desperation we ca- I came out of um, doing an MBA in 2009 at, at the sort of height of the, that, the banking crisis and I had aspirations having run um, some of Unilever's kind of smaller brands of doing a sort of turnaround in private equity of a, of a sort of traditional brand maybe a brand a little bit on its knees but there weren't any the jobs and I, and I happened to bump, bump into a guy who had said there was a craze in the US of doing pop-up shops and I had managed to convince Unilever to give me the, the licensing rights to Marmite, uh, having run the brand uh, for a period. Um, and I thought it w- might be quite fun and, and a way of sort of, uh, biding a bit of time before I got a proper job to set up a pop-up shop, um, straight after my MBA studies, uh, and do that for sort of three, four months. And uh, I managed to convince two classmates of mine, one who was a environmental lawyer, the other who was a jazz promoter, jazz and classical promoter, to run a pop-up shop on Regent Street. And it was literally that. It was meant to be a temporary retail experience. And we were then to shut the door and go off and put our suits back on and get a proper job.
0: But, but then, obviously, from there, it has evolved into a business that works with some of the most well-known brands today. I mean, tell us a bit about how or what was it in that first Marmite pop-up that made you think that there was more to this than that? Because that was quite early on.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing about it, Ollie, was is we took a, a well-known household brand and we created a retail store on probably the most prime retail estate in in the UK on Regent Street alongside sort of fashion brands. And I think whilst we didn't know it at the time or, or think of it at the time, it was a pretty bold move. And what we showed was that you could take a household iconic brand that isn't known for doing retail and create a full-on brand and retail experience. So we had a cafe on the second floor. We had artworks on the walls. Um, we I think, I think the cheapest cup of coffee and uh, or cup of tea i think it was we didn't extend as far as as coffee and uh toasted marmite and then we had a, a whole collection of kind of merchandise on the ground floor and i think what we proved over the course of sort of eight i think it's eight to sort of 10 weeks is that a brand like marmite could command the attention of the kind of british public and all and, and all the tourists that come down reading street and we could create a profit-making marketing activity, which I think is kind of music to any certainly any marketeers. It is is you know you typically have a marketing budget, and you spend it, and I think when someone comes back to you and gives you a bit more money, you having invested in a in an activity, that's all that's always going to be pretty attractive.
0: And at that stage, really, no one was doing this, but do you think that was sort of I suppose one of the sort of the starters of 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 the whole experiential marketing
1: industry. It's probably overstating to say we were the pioneers. The fashion industry had always done pop-up shops, so they'd always under a different name I guess is sample sample stores where they would sell off, you know, either samples or, or end-of-line items. What we did was bring brands that typically wouldn't create retail stores themselves might even have a very, very, very narrow product offering. I mean, you know, the, the Marmite product offering, you will remember is yeast extract in a jar <laughs> in three sizes and create a retail experience and have the confidence to do that. So that, I, I guess where we were at the beginning was, is, is brands using pop-up shops as, as marketing activities rather than just as a way of uh, selling off excess stock
0: and how? I mean, how do you think that the the industry has changed then in the last sort of fourteen years? Because you know, I mean, God, I mean, the list of brands that have now done kind of pop up shops is is pretty long nowadays, isn't it?
1: What's happened over that period is you're seeing so many more brands doing it. You're seeing a, a far greater sort of theatrical sense of adventure in in the experiences they deliver. Uh, it isn't just about you know, I don't know, taking a product, serving it up and and giving it to, to consumers. It's it's much more about people who experience the whole brand and that might be the backstory to the brand. That might be the merchant that they, they produce in collaboration. That might be bringing in partners who are collaborating on, a, on an activity. They're far more adventurous. They're far more theatrical... Um, They're far more ambitious, I think, than some of the experiences that that we built in the early days.
0: And so, I mean, look, obviously you're at the absolute centre of this world. For you, you know, what are the great examples of recent years? Because obviously one of the problems we all have is, you know, if you don't happen to be there at that point in time, you don't get to experience it. Right. So whereas, you know, with a TV ad, um, you know, one can always just go onto YouTube and, and watch it. Tell us a bit about some of the experiences you think have really stood out over the last few
1: years. There are different types of pop-up shops. There are those that are created to cause a sort of media stir. They they last for a pretty short period of time. They're effectively a a, a media stunt. You know, I think of the likes of Greasy Tunes by Spotify, which is fabulous, Shoreditch, creating a really unusual, uh, distinctive experience you know, music brand entering into the F&B world. Uh, but that really is about grabbing headlines. And then you take the likes of the piazzas for Aperol. So these are physical experiences for the Aperol band where you typically take place in outdoor venues, outdoor locations like Covent Garden, where people can sit around, have a drink in a very branded environment, but it feels like a sort of snapshot of, of Italy or we would, I think UK consumers would perceive to be a kind of Italian experience. Um, there is, uh, I particularly liked, um, the little moons experiential activity, which was last year it wasn't actually a pop-up shop. It was a billboard or, uh, of all things. So it was a combination of a media activity and a sampling activity where, um, little hands appeared out of the billboard and passed you a sample. Uh, you had KFC's Colonel Arms, which was uh, a pub uh, in the spirit of the Colonel, um, which was another kind of great example. Really immersive, really theatrical, grabbed the attention of both the media and of consumers. So there's a whole variety, Ollie, and I think there's some that you know pop up for two or three days, which really, as I said, are media events. And then there's the sort of long-term more kind of semi-permanent experiences. I mean, I'm obviously a little biased to say, and I think the work that we did for, for Magnum in creating the pleasure store, which is the, 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 the kind of most elaborate manifestation of the brand where you go in and make your own Magnum, which we, um, which we created back in 2012 and has been running ever since is a pretty good example of how you marry both a retail experience and a marketing activity to give you the benefit both of income, but also of awareness and and that brand equity building experience of people walking through a branded environment.
0: I mean, I think what's interesting about, about your answer there in some ways is you've divided this world into events that are driven by a desire to get media attention and therefore deliver probably an ROI through exposure and more, I suppose, experiential work that's probably more breakeven, which might get media attention, but ultimately kind of can stand on its own right. Is, do you think brands have to kind of make that choice when they go in?
1: Uh, yeah, yes, because I think there's, in our wise, largely budgetary considerations. So the investment levels to require to deliver an experience that's gonna last two or three days versus an experience that's gonna last weeks are quite stark. Uh, and the complexity of the experience, I think when you're a media stunt and it's two or three days, you know, expectation levels from a consumer perspective are sort of, I think, moderated by the by the knowledge that it's got only around for two or three days. I think if you start creating an experience, you know, using the example of the the, the Magnum store again is if you start creating an experience that that is going to stand around for six, eight, 10, 12 weeks consumers are going to expect a a pretty polished experience and actually they will probably look at that as going to be a permanent experience you know most people who walk into many of our experiences think that they are permanent and 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 that's our sort of that's our benchmark because we need to build them and construct them uh, and design them in a way that it does feel like it's permanent Uh, otherwise the thing starts sort of falling to pieces in the first two or three days and doesn't look particularly good from a brand perspective.
0: And so what is your advice on, on, I suppose, you know, you've run a lot of events that have got a lot of, um, you know, national press, TV coverage over the years. What's your advice to brands that are trying to create an experience that gets those headlines?
1: You'd probably be best asking a PR person on, on that. But but my perspective from the, from the outside is that you need to have something pretty novel. You know, the, it's pretty competitive out there. So there are, you know... I say the hundreds, but the tens of pop-ups probably a week is so you need to come up with something pretty different. You need to be tapped into a cultural insight. Because, you know, the media isn't just gonna write about a brand, um, because they can see that as a pretty narcissistic move. They they need a bigger reason to, to start covering something. So, you know, make sure it's tied to a cultural insight, a cultural moment. Uh, it's got something pretty novel and, and um, you know, the realities of, of today, is got to, it's also got to have the right people in attendance. So the influencer piece is a really big part now of creating any physical experience, any physical event. Is You've got to make sure you have people who already have a following coming to those events as a way of not only drawing the media, but making sure that the reach of that experience gets off to a fast start.
0: And I suppose, look, you and I have worked on projects in the past together where we've tried to integrate experiences with a broader media plan. To what extent do you think that's kind of the way to go to try and make sure, you know, you'll talk about the sort of the cultural insight that needs to sort of support everything. Do you think it is vital that these experiences really are part of a fully integrated brand plan rather than kind of an add on that's sort of seen probably in the old days as a bit interesting and a bit kind of sexy?
1: It's interesting, I think about the way we tend to approach our our work now than we did even seven eight years ago you know seven eight years ago it was all about you know what's a client would come to us and say you know i I want an experience, and our obsession was with that experience and that the physical experience alone now the way we work with clients is is quite different is our job is to come back first and foremost with a creative territory that will work within the, within a physical environment. So if I, if I just talk for a moment about the the Guinness kitchen, Ollie, and, and how that really is a kind of reflection of where the work is going now. It's, we were asked by the Guinness to develop a really, a an activation platform. So for, for Guinness and its relationship with food and its role with food. So, you know, seven, eight years ago, they would have come to us and said, we want an experience. And it would literally just been about that that physical event. Now it's much more about creating or coming up with a creative territory that has a physical element to it, but lives through the whole line. So above and below the line, ideally, and through multiple touch points. So the Guinness Kitchen is really a content platform. So it is a um, creative platform that explains and showcases the Guinness drink and its relationship with with food. So it's recipes, it's food editorial, uh, it's videos and demonstrations from chefs. It's also a food truck and the recipes that came from, from those chefs that appears at stadiums and other public gal- gatherings across, across the country. And it's a really good example of how people are recently viewing the world of experiences, the world of activations, is it needs to be a content idea that is then spun out through multiple channels of which a face-to-face, human-to-human experience is part of.
0: And what is it you think that makes a content platform actually really work and really resonate? Because often, you know, I th- you know, we've both worked on brands where at times it does feel like, you know, you used the word narcissistic earlier, but there are often times where brands think they are more interesting than they actually are. And there is a challenge to get them to come to a place where there really is an interesting, interesting dialogue. I mean, what do you think it is that makes, um, I suppose, a, a content idea really work and be able to work in both the experiential work and also far beyond in social?
1: Look, I think it's important to take a step back as a brand person for a second and and just be a little realistic about how much consumers care about your brand and uh and its concerns from a day-to-day basis. So, you know, not to try and think that you're going to be able to entertain them for hours and on end, Um, you know, brands, however important uh, or however big they are in in people's lives are only one of the concerns and there are other bigger issues in, in people's lives. So I think it's important to find, you know, subject matters and themes that are already important to consumers' lives and to align yourselves to those. So, yeah, food is a great one because everyone, I think, increasingly is interested in food, thank, thank God. Um, and as long as you can pick the, the, the right sort of lens, the right sort of take, have a distinctive view on it, uh, then I think you've got something powerful. Then, then, then the challenge then becomes in how do you tell that story in a really rich fashion? So how do you bring it to life in through multiple touch points for your target consumer in a way that is relevant to them, distinct to them, and to be honest you doesn't ask them to do too much. I think when you as a when as a brand, if you're asking too much of your consumers, they probably won't be engaged. That's agreed, totally.
0: I mean, I suppose one of the things about the food and drink industry, and obviously a lot of the brands you work with, but not exclusively, are in the food and drink space. Sampling is critical, right? And I suppose, to what degree do you think there needs nowadays, because of consumer expectation, to be something more experiential in the way that, that sampling is delivered by brands?
1: Depends only on what side brand you are. You know, I go to, uh, we have our office in um, near the Oval uh cricket ground and, and I occasionally I jump on the tube and I pop up to Borough Market, you know, and I see, you know, the ultimate example of a brand experience in, in Borough Market. It's not it's not owned by a single brand, it's not delivered by a single brand. Uh but it's a wonderful advert for the power of face to face marketing, that human experience, that interaction between the founder, the brand owner and the and the paying public. And it leads to direct sales. You only need to, you know, stand on the corner of one of the the many cheese stalls and see how quickly that sort of morsel of cheese leads to that large round of cheese being purchased.
0: It's interesting because I do think I was talking to someone the other day who works across all the markets in London and they were advocating increasingly that. There are opportunities to to build brands through having stores in marketplaces, to actually kind of being out there and and getting your product in people's hands. And truth be told, as you said earlier, it potentially is you know maybe a
1: revenue stream, but at, but at the worst, kind of cost neutral. It's a really important icebreaker, you know. Walking onto a stand, approaching someone that you've never kind of met before is is awkward for you know the stall owner and it is for the the consumer and that, that corner of a brownie, you know, that more sort of cheese, that little sample of a drink is a lovely icebreaker to have a conversation. And I think when you get, whether you go to you know, taste of London or you've got a bar and market, or you go got seven dials, you know, the opportunity to be able to engage with the, the face and the person behind the brand, to understand the story, to, to get a feel for their passion and their interest in, in what they've made. Um, is a hugely powerful tool particularly for the food industry where you know you know, we taste food and the most important aspect of whether you like something or not is how does it how does it taste so you're not putting it in people's mouths I'm not sure quite how you convince them to part with their money
0: but it's interesting isn't it because so many brands nowadays are and rightly so obsessed by digital and are obsessed by finding ways to have you know, increasingly, you know, broad and at times authentic, at times inauthentic conversations through digital. And yet, as you say, certainly in the food and drink world, nothing, you know, nothing convinced a consumer to keep buying a product than trying it and actually liking it. And I think that is a, it's a challenge to brands, isn't it? Because so often the narrative is grow digital, be digital, and yet actually you kind of live or die in that taste moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you take the funnel, I, I think that... The digital waste in food, it, you know, is obviously hugely important as it is in, in, the, in non-food categories, in driving awareness, in driving consideration, but in the food industry, the test, the, you know, the test of whether your product or brand is stick around, I think is, what does it taste like? And, and that's a, you know, that's a pretty analog experience, but it's a pretty powerful experience. And, and I think that's what you know, we say to a lot of our clients and, and we do predominantly work in the food and drink industry. I'm most, I think probably 70, 80% of our clients of food and drink is, you know, put the product in people's mouths because that's a test of your quality, the test of your confidence, your test of your story. Um, and it will be the thing that people will remember. Um, you know, I bet you can remember, you know, great meals that you've had because there's something very unusual and and powerful about the the memory structures that come from tasting things and um you know lots of words lots of lovely images but if you taste a product that is really quite sensational that leaves an impression on you on you next time you're at the the shelves whether in a market or a supermarket um you're likely to pick it up And to what degree, because
0: look, taste is always the one we all talk about, but to what degree is context important as well? Because obviously you run events from, you know, Waterloo Station to Goodwood, right? You know, the the context in which you do your sampling is obviously hugely kind of varied nowadays. How do you help brands make the decision on where they should be?
1: Well, there are a number of factors that are consideration. So a, a lot depends on the kind of experience you're trying to deliver. You know, in some cases you know, a brand will come to us and say, look, I, I want to distribute a high volume of samples. So then you start to look at the driving factor of that is the number of, the, the cost per contact and the number of samples that can be distributed. So you, so you might forego a little bit of the experience to be in order to do that. So you go towards the the South Banks of this world, the Manchester the Piccadilly, the Waterloo Stations, the King's Cross. You're less concerned by the environment and the experience are much more concerned about trying to hit the numbers to put enough products into people's hands. The contrast of that is going to somewhere like Goodwood where you're, you're trying to envelop the consumer in a world or draw from the environment which you're occupying to create a sort of really theatrical, memorable moment that is more than just the sample that's in their palm. Uh, and, and in those cases, you might forego number so the volume of people for a longer dwell time, a richer experience. And I, it just comes down to the priorities. And that's what, that's what we have to, to do at the early stage of the kind of briefing process is understand from our clients is what's the most important thing that they're trying to uh, deliver and achieve through a campaign.
0: Interesting, interesting. I mean, the the, the sort of the the, var- the variety nowadays that brands can can choose from is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it has you know. I mean, I remember when I did you know an early you know Sif sampling campaign on Waterloo Station that felt radical back in you know ninety nine. You know nowadays, you know I think you, it's it's hard to get through Waterloo Station without there being a sampling activity.
1: Yeah, and I think you know the the stations the stations have always. I mean, said it probably last. I don't know, eight, nine years, I've always had you know, strong, you know, experiential programmes because they offer huge volumes of, of people and, you know, and then they can you can wrap the place in a kind of full media buy and you can create a whole experience around that. I th- what's becoming interesting, Ollie, is just the growth in in events and spaces that you can now go and um activate your brands. And we see that only getting bigger and bigger so you know you're seeing festivals growing by the week and becoming more and more niche and becoming more and more specific to a particular interest group which means you can then target more effectively and which means you can draw on the atmosphere and the the subject matter and the theatrics of that particular experience to you know, kind of to, to build out your own experience. You've got what the big alcohol companies call the third space, which is the sort of F and B experiences that are a little more organic in nature, semi permanent in nature. So then less less like a sort of you know kind of formalized bar, but the places like Vinegar Yard, for example, or Dinerama, uh, where you know there might be multiple vendors, there might be some entertainment. There's um, People who come and go on on a on a kind of regular basis, they're, they're a little more informal. Those places are really interesting to activate because they feel um, they feel they're quite raw. They tend to attract a younger audience. Uh, it feels like the sort of place you discover things, new things. So I think what's what's interesting for us is not only that um, more brands are interesting in our space but there's so much more variety in where we can go to. You know, it was really difficult to do a pop-up shop 14 years ago. I mean, the landlords, um, you know, kind of had to pull teeth to try and get them to to give you a license on a property for a, for a short-term uh, pop-up experience. Now they're, you know, they're bending over backwards to help people because, you know, let's that's, that's, that's face facts here. A lot of the high street is empty and they're looking for brands to bring some life to bring some interest to to those high streets and 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 give people a reason to come out from behind their screens
0: yeah 100% i mean i think was it it was i think it was the recent um, brief for oxford street which specifically asked for brands to step forward who wanted to do things differently in order to try and you know get rid of the vape stores and and, and dodgy candy places? You know, I mean, we all need those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so f- final thoughts. I mean, what is your advice to brands who are looking to take a first step in this area? Often, smaller brands. What do you think is is, is you know how do you navigate this space? What's your what's the route to um, to success, and what are the pitfalls to avoid?
1: I think if you're a if a smaller brands, you're going to be budget constraints. So we, you know, we do get, you know, once you've, once you've done quite a few pop-ups, uh, it's great surprise you know, you get called and asked to do a pop-up and unfortunately we have to say, you know, no to a few people because, you know, they come, they're smaller brands and they don't have the, the budget really to be able to afford agencies. But the thing I would say to them is, you know, remember why, why you're, you're doing it. And, and that's primarily to meet consumers. So, First and foremost, focus on the power of the physical experience, which is the human piece. Make that bit fabulous. You know, don't worry too much about it feeling really slick or you having lots of theatrics, make your brand, um, image stand out, create a physical space. That is a reflection of your brand and your personality, and then really lean into delivering a wonderful. You know human experience great customer service you know and you know really get them to to buy into your enthusiasm and and your passion i mean i saw a lovely pop-up from you know I would describe a small brand but they are certainly not big by any means they're called simply roasted they're a crisp brand uh that's now i think available in in waitrose and probably in in wider distribution now but they did a fantastic um pop-up um last year uh which was a sort of pick and mix crisp shop they just delivered it with you know authenticity character personality there was a queue going down the street it grabbed a whole lot of media attention and it i'm sure they made a lot of evangelists and and advocates over the course of that experience The, the other thing i would say to to people which is a kind of mistake perhaps we made in the in the early days, is you can't buy footfall. So, what do I mean by that? If someone offers you a physical space down a side street and says, "Look, I'll give you a really cheap deal," and doing a physical experience, doing a pop-up, think very carefully about you know taking them up on the opportunity because if you doesn't matter how good the experience is within the four walls you've, that you've created if there's no footfall, you have no engagement. And it is very, very difficult to build an audience overnight. So, um, you know, make sure you go somewhere where there are lots of people.
0: Yeah, good advice. Good advice. So I mean, look, Rupert, uh, two final personal questions. Um, you and I have eaten in a fair number of restaurants in our time. <laughs> um, what's your most memorable meal you've eaten in a restaurant?
1: Ollie, I'm going to sound very, very predictable, but Every year I go back to the same restaurant with my wife. We eat at the same uh, spot at the bar. Um, it's Boca de Lupo in Soho and it's just the most magical environment because it's not fussy, the food is exceptional. Uh we feel very sort of comforted by that kind of, that moment we spend. I think well we I think we tend to get there for lunch and we get sort of politely shuffled out of the door at about six o'clock and uh it's just fabulous food delivered with wonderful service
0: i have to say their um their ice cream shop directly opposite is, is an all-time favorite of the lloyd family
1: <laughs> yeah well i think I, I think often we end up ollie we end up don't even get to the desserts and end up going next door for the to the finale but yes it is fantastic and it's and there's always a queue you know i think that's a, that's another great example is you know they bravery to to put a little ice cream shop down uh down a side alley and, and you know in contradiction to what i just said kind of earlier but you know they have a great product and they have built a following over time because they have such a great product
0: and then finally on the basis that you know i'm still traumatized by a, a, a i think it was a banana souffle you once cooked for me which terrifyingly <laughs> was taken from the great british chef's app which it's... you quite correctly pointed out was not a great method um what beyond that banana souffle is your favorite thing to cook at home
1: it's going to be my it's going to be my grandmother's meal it's not it's not the most delicate of things but it's a schnitzel it's a sort of memory of my childhood it was everything that she stood for which was sort of warmth, uncomplicated, uh, sustenance with some some pickle cucumbers on the side and some nice French fries and perhaps you're feeling really wild, whack a fried egg on the top. It's a hug on a plate, Ollie.
0: I think I think that might be a recipe we need to include in the footnote of this podcast. Well listen Rupert, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your your thoughts about experiential marketing. Fair blessing Thanks for listening to The Food Talk Show. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts.